All right. David went to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? And why is no one with you? Father in heaven, I pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts, prepare us to engage with, um, with your word, to be able to see you and know you, and give us the courage to live a life that, the, that you want us to live. Amen. You may have a seat. In the Central Benjamin Plateau of Israel, uh, you'll find uh, nowadays cities like Jerusalem. And just north of modern Jerusalem is this city of Nob. So where Saul is right now, you can actually see from the Mount of Olives on a clear day, if you look straight north, uh, there's actually this, well, if, if you care, on the, on the horizon, uh, a mosque that marks the high place of Gibeah. Gibeah is where Saul has set up his um, his. That's where Saul lives. And Saul, uh, so just three miles south of Gibeah is Nob. Nob is a place that now, uh, or at the time of David here, has 85 priests serving the, the community there because the place that the priests used to serve had been destroyed. And so they're still kind of picking up the pieces. David's been on the run now for a total of three days from Saul. Jonathan tipped him off that Saul is going to be pursuing him. And it's a little above just rumor status at this point. He's, uh, Saul is declaring all-out war on David. And so David goes to Nob. He meets this high priest here, Ahimelech, and uh, has an interesting conversation with him. It's where we pick up in the story. Ahimelech looks at David and says, why are you here? Why are you alone? This is a very profound question for several different reasons. First and foremost is because this question actually perfectly articulates the state of being that David is in and will be in for a season of time, alone. In Hebrew, when you double up a phrase and say the same thing, it's the Hebrew way of saying what we say in English, seriously. Seriously, what are you doing alone uh, here, David? Now imagine with me if somebody, some prominent figure of society came here. Um, help me out. What's, what's somebody who's very famous right now? Who? Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump comes into here, into this church, and he's by himself. He looks kind of like he hasn't eaten in a while. His hair looks like he's been sleeping outside. Well, okay. No. He, uh, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> he, uh, he looks normal. <laughs> no. <laughs> he, um, he normally has an entourage, surely, a, a group of people that are around him to see him alone would cause some questions. We'd ask him, why are you alone? What's going on right now? Well, consider David's life. Just recently, he went from being a nobody shepherd to instantly famous musician. He's renowned for being able to play the harp in a way that has calmed uh, Saul down during his tantrums that he had for some evil spirit was on him. 
He's the only one that was able to do that. He then shortly after became a military hero. Uh, an icon of, of this huge popular song about him in their culture. He married the princess. He's best friends with the prince. And then three days ago, everything is gone. Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? This is also a profound question because it's asking the question, why? Us Westerners would really prefer to have the question, how? How did God part the Red Sea? How did water come from the rock? How could God's Messiah be God's Messiah and be in this terrible situation of loneliness? Well, as the Easterner would rather, would rather ask the question, why? Why did God part the Red Sea? Why did water come from the rock? And why would he let his Messiah be in this terrible situation? We would be much wiser long term to learn to ask the question, why? Why am I alone right now? Why am I in Nob? Why am I in this situation? We'll begin to see that God actually oftentimes likes to put people in these situations because in these situations you start to see what's really there. Now, any of us can make statements of our faith here in, in, in a church situation, but when we go out into a world and are stripped from all of our comforts, you, comforts, you really see what's actually sticking. David responds to this question with a very creative answer, to say the least. David answered in verse 2, The king has charged me with a certain matter and said to me, No one is to know anything about your mission or your instructions. So he says, I'm on a top secret mission, and apparently he's never been on a top secret mission before, because the first rule is you don't talk about being on a top secret mission. <laughs> and he uh, begins to ask for food, and he asks for uh, this, a, a weapon. Ahimelech sees that there's something going on with David, and he responds with, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, types of actions. He bends the rules and ends up giving some of the sacred bread for the priest to David and giving him his sword. So David thinks that his mission has been accomplished. Perhaps David isn't just lying to this priest. Perhaps he's trying to protect him. You know, you remember in Christopher Nolan's version of the Batman. You've got Batman talking to Lucius, you know, Morgan Freeman's character. He's asking for all of these uh, special gadgets. He never tells him why, you know. But he sort of does, right? He's, he's kind of giving him a version of what he's doing, right? Hey, Lucius, do you have any uh, parachutes that look like Batman's capes that I could use for base jumping? You know, like... And Lucius looks, he's like, look, I, I, if you don't want to tell me what you're doing, I don't have to lie when they ask me. But don't think that I'm an idiot. As far as I'm concerned, this is all your stuff anyway. This kind of seems a little bit like the same types of interaction that's going on between these two. David doesn't have a reason to lie, but he has a reason to protect him. Both of them break the rules uh, in order to do what they think is right in this situation. And it ends up backfiring. Actually, just nearby, there's a person named Doeg, who's the chief, shepherd, uh, the chief herdsman of Saul. This is a very important job. This is, this is the guy who's in charge of Saul's um, investments. 
And he goes and tells Saul that all these priests have hidden David and have helped him and aided him. And uh, so you can see in chapter 22, if you turn the page, um, that Saul is ready to come down to Nob and actually punish these people. He asks them, why, you know, did you hide and re- David and rebel against me? And they're like, we didn't know what was going on with David. Of course, we would help him. He's your bodyguard. He's your son-in-law. Why wouldn't I have helped him? And then he, Saul says, I'm not, I don't believe you. And he commands his people to kill them. His people actually don't do that. And then he asks in verse 18, Doeg to do it. Doeg strikes down the priests. The Edomite turned and struck them down and killed all 85 men who wore the, the priestly garment. Verse 19, he also put to the sword Nob, the town of priests, with its men, its women, its children, its infants, its cattle, and donkey and sheep. This is a very devastating uh, story and an outcome that David definitely wasn't planning on. And before we start to look around and say who's to blame in this situation, every single person in the story did something wrong. Technically, everybody in the story contributed to this situation. And so um, maybe it's more wise to look back on this and think, how do you deal with a very regrettable situation? How do you deal with uh, looking back on something and wishing that you had done it totally different? Surely David is experiencing a high level of regret. Surely he's thinking in his mind, good grief, if only I would have been more forthright with the priest. If only I would have not gone to that altogether. If only I would have a chance to go back and do this, this would never have happened. We too also have our own regrets and our own knob incidents. We say questions, you know, like, if only I had more time. If only I could go back and tell so-and-so that I love them. If only I could uh, go back and tell myself what I know now. Hollywood knows that we would love to have a second chance. This is why they capitalize on movies like The Groundhog Day. Because that tells us, that it gives us a hope that maybe there's some uh, situation where we'll get to actually have a second chance and and have a do-over. What do you do when you look back on your past and you have some major regrets? Well, David reflects on this uh, story in Psalm 52. So if you want to turn there and we'll consider the psalm. David's reflection on this situation is primarily on how someone like Doeg would look back. And he gives some very interesting challenges. So if, if we're to avoid being like Doeg, let's consider when we look back on things that we regret, are we the type of person that brags about it? Are we the type of person that looks back and thinks, Uh, of a way to justify our actions. Verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, mighty man? Why do you boast all day long, you who are disgraced in the eyes of God? Oh, your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharp razor. 
You who practice deceit, you love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. Selah. Sometimes we look back on regrettable situations and we actually try and uh, paint ourselves in a better picture. We brag about the things that we do. I do it all the time. I look back on the way I treated other drivers on the road and I'll try and paint myself in the perfect picture. Well, if I wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have yelled at that sweet old lady if she would have put her blinker on. Or I wouldn't have, you know, shouted at this person if they would have just done things differently. I am not to blame here. And then we might even move into boasting about the things that we regret. Oh, you should have heard how I, what I said. It was so witty. It was so perfect. Sometimes uh, when we want to medicate the feeling of regret, we'll even make a moral out of the story and make ourselves look like the hero, but all the while just justifying something that is evil, something that we regret. What will end up happening in this pattern of life is we'll become a group of people that can never admit that we did anything wrong. We'll always be training ourselves to look at our wrongdoings and think of somehow how I'm a little bit right in the situation. David continues on in verse 7, and he says that everybody's going to be able to know. The righteous are going to look at you, and they're going to, be, they're going to fear and laugh and say, that kid doesn't trust the Lord. He's in it just to, for wealth, and anybody that gets in his way, he takes out. So much of that verse embodies things that we celebrate, people and figures that we celebrate in our culture. Just in it to get money. Justin and anybody that gets in my way, I will, I, will, I will plow over them. The difference that David paints uh, between this persona and his own is in the following verses. He says of himself, I am like a tree, a healthy green olive tree planted in the house of God. I will trust in uh, his unfailing love. And I'll praise him for what he has done. See, at the end of the day, when we look back on things that we regret, it's painful. Because the past is the past and there's no way to change it. There's no way to fix what we've done wrong. The difference between someone who's like Doeg and David, the, the Doeg looks back and justifies it. David looks back and says, I don't know what to do with that. It happened, but I'm going to trust in the unfailing love of God for my past. And many of us refuse to let ourselves be forgiven. Many of us refuse to let ourselves off the, off the hook for our past. David says is I'm not going to hope it and and I'm not going to praise God for what I have done. I'm going to praise God for what he has done. And what he has done is this. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to come to this world and provide forgiveness for all of us. Forgiveness for all of the sins of our past. And if there's something in your heart that you regret and you will not let yourself be forgiven for, I want to challenge you this morning to just put your hands out towards God open and to say, I am receiving the gospel over my past. I'm going to receive, maybe for the first time, forgiveness for the things that I have done wrong and forgiveness for the things that I have not done that I should have done.
receive the gospel where Jesus forgives us and washes our past whiter than snow. Consider the song. Trust in God's unfailing love forever and for all you've done. How we sing your praise together with your saints. Trust in God's unfailing love forever and for all you've done. I will see your praise together with the saints, and I Of your love, 
story number two starts in verse 10. That very day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. 25 miles to the east uh, and a little to the south, or to the west, okay, towards America, to, 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 uh, to the south is a town called Gath. Why would David flee after this incident to Gath? This seems like a very unlikely place for him to go. David goes to Achish. Well, my flannel graph, you know, childhood story mind has these two kind of melted together where all the cloak and dagger from the knob incident also uh, leads to even more secrets, you know, in the gaff situation where he's trying to hide his identity somehow. But when I think about it, that doesn't necessarily make sense. Why would David go there and try and blend in? I mean, there's other cities that he could have gone to. He must have known that they're singing this song about him even over in Gath. Look at verse 11. They know the song. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousand. This is the Billboard Top 100 hit right now. If he was also trying to go incognito, probably wasn't a great idea to walk through the metal detector with the sword of Goliath. Maybe, he ha- maybe he's actually trying uh, to, uh, to be recognized. The Jewish sages believed that the bodyguards of Achish were the brothers of, of, of Goliath. So that might explain why he so quickly was recognized. Well, as David, you can see in verse 13, started to realize that they were going to be hostile towards him. He pretends to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Definitely not the David that we know. Maybe he's here because he wants to be a hired uh, gun. Maybe he wants to become a mercenary and, and bring in the sword of Saul was his kind of resume. Uh, maybe he just read The Art of War and any enemy of my enemy is my friend. And he thinks that he can team up with uh, Kish, you know, to run from Saul. I think it's clear at verse 10 that the only thing that David is trying to solve right now is his Saul problem. It's remarkable what fear can make a man do. I mean, he has in his hands the sword of Goliath. The very remnant that proves the valiant faithfulness of God is in his possession. Yet he also is still afraid of his new enemy. I'd like to say that I never experienced the same feeling. I'd like to say that God has redeemed, uh, you know, has blessed my life and bailed me out of things. And then the very next time, I'm afraid I have all the capacity that I need in order to engage uh, that situation like a righteous warrior, right? Maybe I'm the only one. But if you are like me and you have a pattern of your life of, of being... Uh, bailed out by the Lord or being blessed by God in situations and then turning around and in the very next time feeling just as afraid as you were before. Maybe we need to start asking ourselves what can prepare us for these times uh, where we're afraid. 
what are you afraid of and where is it taking you? Where are the places that it takes you? A fear-driven life will take you to places that you would never have gone. I'm very interested in uh, the history of Gath, uh, but I also uh, melt together some of the very likely things that would happen in Gath as a metaphor for us now. Because even now we can be running to Gath of our own. Let me introduce you to Gath. Gath is the type of place where uh, you have in your mind this exotic job that is somewhere far away from all the difficult people in your life that pays so much money but also requires very little effort. You know the job that I'm thinking of. The job that you look out your window or look at your computer screen and, and just wish that you had that would solve all of your problems. Welcome to Gath. Gath is also a place where the grass is always greener on the other side. Gath mocks fidelity. Gath is the place that, that says to the faithful spouse, you can have fulfillment in another. You can have satisfaction in another. Well, Gath is the type of place where religion is, you know, kind of up for grabs. They welcome people to pick apart their religion with cynicism and bitterness. They welcome people to make an own version of their Christian faith uh, that is much more progressive and less uh, senile and old. Antiquated. That's the word I was looking for. Gath is a place where you have no accountability for what you look at on the internet. Gath is a place where morals don't really exist. Gath is a place where uh, you never have to face your fears. You never have to worry about being the person that God wants you to be. You'd be crazy to leave. If you're in Gath in your own life right now, I want you to consider the psalm that David wrote after he left this place. Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, David uh, is preaching to all of us for a radical reorientation of what we're focusing on. For those of us who are uh, driven by fear into Gath, our eyes have been on the wrong thing. Our heart have, has been focusing on all the wrong things. And this psalm, remarkably, is constantly saying, look to God and look to his goodness and use that as something that you, that you build your foundation on. I mean, 18 out of the 22 verses here explicitly say, with, every situa- with everything that's around you, praise God, look to him and see his goodness. I mean, imagine if we were to give God actual credit for all the good things that are around us, how ready we would be when, when we're in a place of fear, how ready we would be uh, to choose to do the right thing. We have quite a bit of things to be thankful for, and we have a very abundant wealth of resource to be able to do it. He says in the first verse here, you can use your lips to praise God. You can use your eyes in verse 4 and 5. You can can use your your taste and see in verse 8. You can use your stomach in verse 10. You can can experience God with your tongue in verse 13. You can see him. You can, even in an anxious and broken place, 
God draws near to the brokenhearted in verse 18. God saves those who are crushed in spirit. We have the opportunity to turn our eyes again towards the Lord instead of turning our eyes towards our our fear and what we're afraid of. The psalm is not saying that those things don't exist, that God doesn't exist. The psalm is saying that what we ought to be looking at more often is the Lord. So if your life, if you consider your life right now and that you are in Gath or you're continually being driven by fear to a place that you would never go. I want you just to consider what you're primarily looking at and how uh, you can add to your life even more times where you're looking towards the Lord and reorienting your focus. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. The gospel is that Jesus left where he was to go to Gath and rescue all we who like sheep that have gone astray and said no to the will of God and said, no, I'm afraid to be the man or the woman that you want me to be. Jesus left where he was and said, I'm going to go and I'm going to rescue you. There's nothing that you have to be afraid of. And so I want you to consider maybe this morning being a time where you reevaluate and think, I've been focusing on all the wrong things. And it's time to focus on the good shepherd who has us in his hand and who's capable of leading us and is trustworthy. Take a moment and consider the song.
two more verses in a psalm if you're still with me. Are you still with me? Oh, okay. Chapter, chapter 22 and verse 1 reads as follows. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress and in debt or discontented gathered around him and became their leader. About 400 men with him. The psalm is Psalm 142. Just east of Gath, even to this day, are many systems of caves that could fit well over 400 people. But one thing's for certain that nobody goes to a cave on their best day. No doubt a fitting place for David after being humiliated in front of people that he had already conquered, having to fake that he was a madman. Some people go to caves because of things that they've done, like David, and are ashamed and want isolation from the rest of the world. Sometimes people go to caves because there's been a traumatic experience in their life, a death in the family or something that's happened, and they go into a deep depression and a dark place. Other people go into caves for different reasons. My question is not, are we in caves? I know that many of us here are. My question is, is what did David do in the cave? The title of Psalm 142 is telling, a masculine of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. Praying is probably the last thing that some of us want to do when we're in a dark place. But, but some of the most powerful and meaningful prayers of our lives will be done in caves. And I want to give you permission to pray like David, even in the cave that you may be in right now. What's one of the first things that we see in this psalm? I notice that he is okay being very clear with God about the way that he feels right now. Verse 3, my spirit is faint within me. They have hidden a snare for me. Nobody cares about my life. My enemies are too strong for me. I feel like I'm in prison. You know that you can be honest with God. And sometimes a prayer in the cave needs to have a, uh, a honesty attached to it that isn't refined. He doesn't have any pleasantries here. He just goes right into it. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. I lift up my voice and I ask for mercy. Mercy is something that we definitely should ask for in the cave. It's another way of just asking God for help. When's the last time that you just looked to God and said, I am overwhelmed right now. I am in over my head in my life situation. I have no map for where I am right now. But I just know that I need your help. Asking God for help in the, cave, uh, in the caves in life is a very healthy place to be. To be. 
Acknowledging our inability and acknowledging that we can't do things is great because it cuts right through the pride that normally lies there. And it leaves us in a place where we're able to just truly see God for who he wants to be for us. Because who God wants to be for us is verse 5. I cry out to you, Lord, and say you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Sometimes the only reason that God brings us into caves is to hear us say this. And to, and to draw us into a place where we can actually uh, truly say this to the Lord. There are so many things that we use as crutches and lean on. So many different uh, medications that we give to our, our, our hearts and our minds to uh, think uh, that we have more stability than we do. So many things that we trust uh, for satisfaction that never give it. That God in his kindness leads us to caves. And leads us to a place where we're able to actually strip it all back and say, Lord, you're my portion. If it's been a while since you looked to the Lord and said, you're my portion, I want you to consider that place this morning. Consider your life and the idols that might be there that you're looking to and saying, you fill me up. You are what satisfied me. And strip it back and, and, and actually speak the truth to yourself and say, the Lord is my portion. And don't forget the second part of those verses either. Oftentimes when we are in a cave in life and in a dark place, we want to be alone and we want to, to hide from everyone else. But this morning I want you to consider actually letting people surround you. Oftentimes, God, after we do come to him in humility, will bring people around us. But David's family didn't come to the cave until they heard. And if we keep it a secret from each other that we're struggling, how will people know to come and surround you? How will other people, like the people that were surrounded David, who are also broken and, uh, and crushed in spirit, surround you? And so as a special uh, response today, I just want to ask you guys to really consider, if you're in a cave and you're in a deep, dark place for whatever reason, nobody's going to judge you but to take a stand and stand up and allow the people that are around you to turn to you and pray for you. And I want to challenge the people that see the people, uh, see us stand up, to, to reach out to them and surround them as the family that we are. If you're in a cave this morning, I want you to just stand and consider the gospel for your life. There is no cave and no dark, deep place that you can go to that will separate you from the love of Jesus. For the Son of God came to this world and he suffered and died and also was placed down in a cave so that all of us in our caves can have a companion and can have a sympathetic Savior who's constantly reaching out to you with his healing hand and saying, take my hand as I bring you out of the darkness and into the light. Take my hand because I want to restore your life. Lord, you are our portion. You are our refuge.
someone that's uh, maybe standing in the place of that cave. Just like David prays, he says, let the righteous gather around me. Maybe we can show each other community this morning by going to those people and lifting up their burdens before the Lord. Lift up my voice to you, Lord, for mercy. For my spirit grows faint within me. Look and see, there's no one around me, no one who cares for my
for, we receive your forgiveness for our past. We receive your leadership for where we're headed and we trust you with our future every step of the way. And we receive your blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord will turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen. Happy Memorial Day. Weekend. Hear my prayer. Hear my